there is between 19 and 22 different versions of the same film. So, how can we know what is the truth, what is the real? That is Georges Moyen of Cinématique Française. The film Georges is talking about is Napoleon, the 1927 silent classic by Abogantz. And we, there have been nearly two dozen versions of the film. And right now, in a dark room outside of Paris, Georges is working on yet another restoration of Napoleon. Never forget that this masterpiece is also a monsterpiece. Which is why Georges says, while he's working on this new version, based in part on Gans's notes and previously undiscovered reels, he'll never be alone with Napoleon. A collaborator will always be with him in the screening room as he grapples with the genius of Gantz. A little history, Gantz released two versions of the film in 1927. The four-hour opera version, so named because it was screened at the Paris Opera House. And then the nine-hour Apollo version, screened at the Apollo Cinema. The four-hour opera was for the public. The nine-hour Apollo was for friends and reporters. Both films were silence, and then the sound era arrived. Gantz changed with the times, and in 1935, he made a talky version of Napoleon and used scenes from the silent versions as flashbacks. The decades went by, the decades went by. And then near the end of his life in 1971, Gantz made a second sound version. In that version, he cast three different actors as Napoleon. Gantz's 1927 Napoleon, like its subject, is revolutionary. Moyen calls it one of the three essential films of the silent era. Stern, the German news magazine, called Napoleon a dangerously beautiful film. It makes you want to plunge right into it, go crazy, march along right with it, enjoy it. You were drawn in by the many cinematographic devices that Abel Gantz thought up specifically for Napoleon. Those cinematographic devices are many. Gantz's film is full of quick cuts, montage, in-camera editing, and impressive camera angles. And most famously, there's polyvision, an Abel Gantz invention. At a couple of places in the film, two additional screens are revealed on either side of the original screen, creating a triptych. So what is the truth? What is the real? How does our French restoration come to terms with Napoleon? I'm Todd Melby, and this is The Drunk Projectionist. It is absolutely very legendary film, uh, because many persons know it. I'm George Moria, and first of all, I'm director and a specialist, or restoration expert, and I'm in charge from the French Cinematheque, the Cinematheque Française, since uh, 2008, about the expert appraisal and the restoration, the first um, digital restoration of the Napoleon of Abelgans. I have this honor. One life is not enough 
to to speak or to contain in the entire dimension the legendary film because of course in the silent film the silent period there is um, for me uh, three um, gigantic movies intolerance of dw griffiths or the birth of nation and the metropolis of fritz lang and also there is uh, the napoleon of abelgans because something very special that this film is in fact only one of the six films gans had the project to do and he had only the money and the time to make only the first part and this first part uh, the duration of the definitive version as we said uh, was around um, six hours and a half or six hours and 45 minutes uh, and um, and there is no hostelets or um, water or battles there, there is just the beginning of the story of the Napoleon, you know, it is maybe like this um, very famous uh, architect, architect, architect uh, Spain architect, who, who built the Sagrada Familia in um, Barcelona. Um, he had only the money to, to build the entrance. And that is exactly the same, but it is a monumental, a legendary film. So that is the legendary. And after that, there is the the pragmatic aspect, the concrete uh, um, aspect, uh, that it was all, uh, also a great revolution and many discoveries about the cinematic language. As a French historian, a very famous French historian called uh, Georges Sadoul wrote in the beginning of the 60s, he wrote that some sequences of this film, of the Napoleon of Abelgans, opened new roads uh, for the cinematic language, and all of these roads are not yet all explored. Uh, could you explain the... You know, the difference between, just give us the whole history of the various versions of Napoleon, starting in 1927 with the opera version and the Apollo version, and then going to 1935 and 1971. Well, I'm going to, first of all, to... Uh, to ask more patience because <laughs> it is not very simple, but I'm going to try to be the first, like we say in French, uh, the premier in the Opéra de Paris in uh, 1927, in the, the 7th of April. And the duration of this version was around four hours with triptychs. And one month later, um, Abel Gans screened uh, a long version in the cinema theater, which doesn't exist anymore now, and was called uh, Apollo. That's why we call this the Apollo version. And it wasn't a public screening. It was only for the professionals, for critics and for distributors. That's right, for distributors. And, um, but the duration of this version was uh, around nine hours and a half. And without triptychs, because the um, Apollo Theater hadn't the material to screen three 
since in the same time. Um, it, it was the case in the uh, at the Opéra de Paris because uh, there were around more than 10 screenings um, but it was a, a public exploitation, it was a public diffusion, not in Apollo. And Abel Gans previewed an alternative um, version for the cinema uh, which hadn't the material to screen the triptychs. So the Apollo version hadn't the triptychs for this presentation, but in the project of Abel Gans, it, it had. And so after that, the great drama of the film that it is the end of the silent period and um, how can we get some money with a silent film when it is the talking period so you are going to make sound about the original film and so uh, Abel Gans himself when he was able to do it in 1935 he made a first talking version uh, from the two versions of 1927 and he was the first person who began to mix the two original negatives and especially he edited some shots never edited in the original version that's something i discovered during this expert appraisal and uh, that is the first talking version and the third version made by Abel Gans. And the duration was two hours and 20 minutes. So I, I say at once that if somebody think, uh, if somebody thinks that the Napoleon Bonaparte, the first talking version of 1935, is just a silent film with sound, it's, it's false. It is a re-editing work with new sequences, with new actors, and these actors, these characters, had some flashback. And inside the flashbacks, there are some sequences of the silent version. And so, in 1971, uh, Abel Gans made a, a second talking version, and he made, by the way, exactly the same that in 1935. So, he made new sequences, with new actors, with new characters, and he used some sequences of the version of 1935, and also he used some other sequences of the two versions of 1927. So, don't try to understand anything, because it seems to me that some characters are played by three different actors in the same movie. It is an incredible, very fascinating experience but it is very strange and that is only the person the personal interventions of abel Gans himself the the character of louis the 16th was played by three actors right he lost he, he lost his head but uh, he, he he went three characters <laughs> so uh, it, it, and uh, marat also is played by two different actors by uh, antonin artaud for the sequences uh, made in uh, 1927 in the sequences made in 1935 and by henri villorgeux who was a very famous french player in um, 1971. Why did Gantz, Abel Gantz, um, have multiple actors play the same role? Was that an artistic choice or was he crazy? 
if, if I can speak like uh, our famous French poet Jean Cocteau, we can say that Abel Gans was a crazy man who believed that he was Abel Gans. <laughs> so um, it is maybe crazy. But it is a great also a lesson of integrity because uh, he trusts in the audience. He trusts in the audience. It is not very important for him if there are some errors for us. He had another dimension than usual directors. Maybe, maybe, if, um, maybe he is uh, or he was. Uh, he was an albatross, you know, this kind of giant uh, bird of the sea. He, he, as we, as Baudelaire, uh, our French poet, said, he can't work. He can only fly. He, he, he can't walk uh, on the roof. And uh, it seems to me that maybe um, actually we were staying on the roof about the, the cinema. But it is incredible. It, in fact, it is. Let's talk about uh, one or two or three specific scenes from Napoleon. Uh, what is your favorite scene? It's a so subjective um, question. Of course, I can, I can say that um, my, the sequence who made me astonished, that's right, when I discovered it in the um, screening of the Palais des Congrès in 1983 in Paris. It was a double storm scene. And uh, especially George Sadoul uh, wrote about this scene because this scene was um, um, simultaneous uh, movement, simulta simultaneous actions, and also um, a very extraordinary ubiquity 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 yes you 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 are you are the spectator you are the viewer but you are in the both places in the convention uh, in one hand and in the the other the other hand you are also with the napoleon is is in his poor little boat in a terrible uh, tempest and it is the parallel between the um, human tempest in the French Revolution Convention and the uh, geographical tempest in the battle because it was it, it, it is an it is a climax of the film and it is absolutely wonderful and of course the final triptych sequences but um, I was really astonished by this sequence of the Dumber storm can you also talk about the snowball scene, fight scene? Ah, la, la bataille de boule de neige. Oh, the, 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 snowball, the snowball sequence. Oh, how can I say that? You know, of course, I, I'm not pretentious and I, um, I, I hesitate to, to say that I'm director when I have to speak about the, the, a kind of giant like Abel Gans. But um, when the French Cinematheque asked me to work about this marvelous project, it was like if you, and if you answer to a Sunday painter to, to make the dust in the, the room of Michelangelo. You understand what I mean? Oh, oui, oui, oui. And uh, so uh, I discovered 
I discovered because I'm also a small, but I am also director. I discovered the 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 way, the private way, the private rules. Um, through them, uh, he obtained uh, to build the emotions. And the snowball is very a great, great, great lesson uh, when the director trusts in his uh, audience. Because usually directors doesn't dare to, um, to make um, audacious uh, some some audacious manners in the first scenes, and it was absolutely not the case of Abel Gans because Abel Gans trust absolutely in his audience. It is not an in, in, intellectual relation. It is a um, affective and very sincere uh, relation. So, first of all, the first scene of the film is like a. Or can we say it? the experimental sequences? He he gave to the audience directly all the key, and so um, it is uh, like if uh, Abel Gans told to his audience, "So you are going that that's what you are going to see in the following hours," and I trust in you. I trust in you, you can understand this form of the cinematic language. And it works. And it works. So we can't explain um, how it processed, but we can't absolutely accept the evidence that the audience understood at once. So it isn't absolutely not for an intellectual uh, audience. It is for all the world. And the first proof of this way, um, this sincerity of Abel Gans, is uh, the first scene of the snowball. The snowball sequence, it's incredible because uh, there is two aspects. There is the artistic aspect, but also there is a technical aspect. And first of all, uh, for the technical aspect, we can't imagine now with the digital technologies what was the 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 work, uh, the days and the days of work to obtain this simple sequence, and all the technicians and especially the mm, direct, director of photography, the director of photography uh, like uh, Mundwiller or Jules Kruger um, on this sequence, uh, they are maybe the best in the world at this period because they had to work on the film in camera. There is no special effects after the set. And so they had to imagine what will be the result after the set. And so it was a very technical challenge and actually it's difficult yet to explain how technically Gans managed to obtain these effects. Uh, first of all, the technical aspect proved something that it is not a construction uh, or an editing work imagined after the set. It was preview or previewed. Uh, 
It was previewed and it is, it is like a visionary. Because you can't, technic, technology speaking, you can't uh, obtain this kind of images uh, without to imagine before all of them. We can call that the genius of Abelkans. After that, there is an artistic way. You know that the battle, the snow battle, was made uh, in the beginning of 1925, if I remember well. And um, at this time, the fam famous uh, Russian director, Eisenstein, had not yet begun his first film, the Cuirassé Potemkin, or Potemkin. Okay, so uh, there is something very extraordinary because all uh, Abelgans invented or developed all the rules of the um, editing work uh, later theorized uh, by Eisenstein. All right, so the restorations. Uh, there are five different restorations is, with 22 different versions, is, is that right? At the beginning of this adventure, we didn't woke up, um, wake up. We didn't wake up uh, one morning and uh, say to, to us, uh, so what we are going to do today? We are going to start a new restoration of Abelgans Napoleons. That's great. No, absolutely not. At the beginning, it was just to know what the French Cinematheque had in his reels. So, uh, when the, a new curator uh, was arrived, uh, her name was uh, Camille Bulot-Vélens, she uh, told to the Direction Générale of the French Cinematheque, so, we can't guarantee innovation. There is between 19 and 22 different versions of the same film. So, how can we know what is the truth, what is the real? In the 1935 sound version, are they only from the opera and Apollo versions, or is there unused footage from the silence? We discovered more than 400 reels never opened since the last intervention, personal intervention by Abel Gans himself in 1971. And very important things, we, disco we discovered them in the, in the boxes, the original boxes with the um, written um, information um, of the last editing assistant of Abel Gans during Bonaparte et la Révolution. It was the title of the second talking version. And um, absolutely no one of these 400 reels uh, was found by all our illustrious predecessors. And so we were taken by the destiny and uh, it was absolutely evident that uh, we had to begin a new restoration and this restoration uh, will be the first in digital uh, restoration because uh, we, we didn't expect to discover so many things. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you a question about your, your emotional reaction or your personal reaction to the discovery of these reels of film 
that you didn't know exist. What was that moment like when you realized, wow, look what we have here? Astonished, I was with my because it is not in one way, in one, um, in one, in one place. It is through the different institutions in France and in the international system of the FIAF, is the Fédération Internationale des Archives du Film. Uh, but it was, it was incredible because in fact we discovered, first of all, um, 179 reels. Um, two weeks before to get my final report. So it was astonished, surprised for us because I was no more uh, able to get some conclusion uh, when I just discovered 179 new reels. And um, one, week's, one week after, I discovered 202 new reels also. And so we worked one year again, one year, one year more. So uh, we, we were absolutely, how can I say, ecstatic. Yes, ecstatic, pragmatic and ecstatic. That is, is the same way. It was, it was a very paradoxical situation because each reels explained to us what was the exceptional destiny this destiny of the film and the different inter interventions because how can i say um the question the question was that when we observed a splice in any positive print so who made this splice and from which material so how could we uh, recognize the arborescence did you have to go get more people and more money to do more work? No. Your question is very pertinent, and I am going to explain you why. Because, as I told to you, I worked with Bambi Ballard. Bambi Ballard made the, the fourth restoration, Argentic uh, restoration, in 1992 of the Napoleon. Uh, she was a model of in integrity and method. She learned me a lot of things, but she was alone in front of this marvelous film. And don't forget, as I said during my conference in the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, don't forget, never forget that this masterpiece is also a monsterpiece. Tell me what you mean by that when you say this masterpiece is also a monsterpiece. What do you mean? Because, because it, is a it is like a sortilege. How can I translate that? Because it, it is an obsessed work. It is an obsessed work. And I knew, uh, and I knew that uh, still my, uh, when I was movie student, because I saw um, what was the human cost paid by Bambi Ballard. Uh, she made marvelous work, but she was alone. And uh, it, it, it was, uh, it was very an amazing adventure for her. Uh, the, the human cost was absolutely very, very high. And so when the French Cinematheque make, made me the honor to uh, work on this project, I, I obtained only one condition. It was to never be alone in front of this film. Um, let's talk about the, the Marseillaise and the film you know, excerpt that you showed in San Francisco and that I've seen online where the new version has it so the audience can sing along. 
how did you discover that? And how did, how, how did you know that that was Gantz's intent? I, I didn't decide that the the original version was that because um, we we were exactly in the limits. We were exactly in the shadow and the rhythm of the original thing. Because first of all, there are a, a oral tradition that the um, one of the characters, one of the players of the film, um, Kubitsky, Kubitsky played Danton in the Napoleon of Abel Gans. Kubitsky was a tenor. And the oral tradition uh, told that in the opera uh, screening, uh, each night he came to sing synchronously uh, with the screening uh, the Marseillaise. So that, that was only an oral tradition, no proof. Of course, but when we discovered the key of the film, so between the difference between the opera version and the Apollo version, we discovered that if we followed the new rules of the reconstruction, uh, we were able to sing synchronously with the new version. It wasn't re-edited to be synchronized. It was the new editing work, uh, which was synchronized to the Marseilles sing. You understand what I mean? Mm, no. <laughs> so it uh, the goal was not to 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 get a sequence synchronizes uh, synchronized with the Marseilles song. It was first of all our work editing. And during our work, we discovered that we had a version um, during we, we were able to sing the Marseillaise with the film. And so uh, it was a confirmation that the oral tradition was the truth. <laughs> You understand what I mean? It, it, it wasn't a goal for us. It was just the result of our work about the film. In my office, all the, the, the other offices in the floor, uh, upstairs or downstairs, believed that my assistant editor and me became crazy because they heard uh, us singing Mar the Marseillaise many, many times to discover at each new shot that we were able to sing the Marseillaise exactly synchronized with the, this rediscovered version. So are you doing an opera version or an Apollo version or both? Uh, at the beginning, we hesitate to restore the both, but it's very too expensive. 
is very too expensive, and especially because the oral tradition, um, when you uh, when you read the letters uh, to Gans of uh, different person uh, who had the privilege to watch the film uh, during the both um, screening at the opera version and the Apollo version, uh, all of them said that the Apollo version was artistically artistically higher. It was just an oral tradition, but now we know that it was the truth. And so we, we decided, and especially I remember to you that the opera version was only around uh, four hours long, and uh, the Apollo version, from which Abel Gans continued to work about his, about his editing work until November of 1927, and the definite version um, was sent to the MGM in USA for the international exploitation, uh, and the duration of this version was uh, between uh, six hours and a half, or six, six hours and uh, 40 minutes, but it was made from one negative, from this Apollo, Apollo negative. So, so the version you're working on will be closer in length to the opera version? It'll be four, five, or six hours? Actually, my, the duration of my reconstruction is uh, six hours and a half. So one hour, uh, one hour more than the last restoration uh, from Kev Kevin Brunlow, uh, who I, I'm plenty of respect, of course. And uh, we reestablished the original editing work of the five hours and a half preceding hours. One, war, one hour more, and we will trade the Apollo uh, or the definite, def, definitive uh, version of November 1927 of Abel Gans. And it is exactly a new music of light. Who is composing the music, or which composition will you be using? Oh, so I, I I don't know because I'm not the decision maker about that. But it seems to me that first of all, it is um, an affective voluntary of uh, Francis Ford Coppola because he he wants to honor the memory of his father, Carmen Coppola, and he had a dream, <laughs> and uh, he, he made it by the past uh, to celebrate this masterpiece with the music of his father. But of course, his father is, um, is no more with us now, and uh, the music he composed for the version of 1983 is not, uh, it, it isn't synchronized with the new uh, restoration. So there is all a work of uh, adaptation about the Carmen Coppola score, and it seems to me that primarily, uh, primarily this version will be exploited by Francis Ford Coppola um, in the foreign countries uh, with the score of his father, certainly. Who did the music originally, and why not use that? Oh! Ha! <laughs> I can I can say exactly because Carl Davis made a great a great work a great uh, musical approach but as um, a new historian in USA called Paul Keff uh, made an, an, a kind of hypothesis 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 uh, that um, maybe the music 
can give a value to the film over the real value of the film. In fact, I discovered the Napoleon twice. First of all, in 1983, in the Palais des Congrès in Paris, with the Carl Davis score. And after that, I discovered it um, one more time in Paris at the Zenith uh, in 1985 with the Carmine Coppola score and Carmine Coppola himself directed. It was good, but it you know that it is... Absolutely not the same meaning, the same thinking um, in our culture. The, the musical approach in the American movies is not in the the same that in the European approach. So maybe it depends about the kind of audience. I don't know, but uh, we agree something that uh, the original score of Carmen Coppola had to be adapted. Uh, to the new duration, the new choices of discovered by Abel Gans himself, and uh, it will be a new work. So let me ask you one more question, maybe two more, but at least one more. 100 years from now, will people be making new restorations, new versions of Napoleon? Why not? Why not? Because this... This film is, it seems to me, that more than a movie, it is like a, a cathedral. And uh, one life is not enough. And uh, something I was learned from Bambi Ballard about that, she was very sincere and absolute in his way to restore the film, but she was always conscious that maybe one day there will be another person, and maybe she didn't imagine that uh, this person, uh, 30 years or 20, 20 years later, um, will be me. And I make exactly the same. So I note all the, the references of our choices, uh, when it's not very evident why we make this choice and not this other, because uh, we are conscious that maybe in 20 years uh, there, there is going to be new discoveries and uh, a new restoration. Why not? No, nothing is definitive with Abel Gans. Nothing. So there will never be a definitive version of Napoleon? We made uh, with this great progress, it seems to me, <laughs> great progress. But um, there is a kind of fantasy of the original director's cut. And you say it's a fantasy that there is a definitive version of this movie because it's impossible to know or because Gantz changed it so much? He changed many, many things, many of things, because the, this work asked us an ethic problem. An ethical problem. Ethical problem, an ethical problem. Um, between the different versions of Abel Gans himself, which version to choice? Which, so which, which of them were going to say that that is the reference? And so our reference actually is the um, reference of the version of November of 1927 made from one negative, that's what we discovered, one, what only negative, uh, it was the Apollo negative. And it is our choice 
But in fact, for example, if in if in 20 years somebody wants uh, to restore and had the financial aspect also to restore the operation, he can. Of course, he can. So someone could make the uh, the longer Apollo version based on all the discoveries if they had enough money. Mm. That that is not exactly the question about us. Um, because uh, the because the, the definitive version of Gans, uh, the final choice was not the Apollo version. So that is not the question for us. But the discoveries of some rushes, some exercise of editing work, um, can make uh, as able to understand what was his uh, crafting process. That is really interesting. So it's a mistake to think the longer version is the definitive version or the director's cut version. The director's, the, the director's version was the definitive version of November of 1927 because Apollo version wasn't a public screening. So it was like uh, you make uh, and you and like you do in USA. The, it was a preview. It was a testing, and it seems to me that Abel Gans tried a first level of audacious um, approaches uh, in the opera version. And when he <coughs> and when he observed that it was a success, he presented a higher, a more audacious version in the Apollo version. And that's why the oral tradition was true. Well, terrific. <laughs> I have no more questions. <laughs> so uh, I'm very sorry to be so long, but uh, you know, when a French person begins to, to, to speak, we can't stop it. We can't stop uh, him. <laughs> well, all right. Thank you again. Thank you so much. So thank you, Todd. Would you like to see the French national anthem scene that Georges was talking about? Of course you would. We've got it on our website, thedrunkprojectionist.com. Also there, you'll see what the Napoleon triptych looked like when it was screened at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. We've also got a lot of other Napoleon-specific stuff, including links to articles on the BFI site, and a reading list for you true obsessives. And if you made it this far into the podcast, you're probably a Napoleon obsessive. I just finished reading the Kevin Brownlow book from the 1980s. Uh, it's not particularly well-written, but it is full of detailed information on how specific scenes were shot and has dozens of photos of actors and crew at work. And one of my favorite was uh, one of the three cameras mounted on a single tripod, so you can see how Gantt set up the cameras for the triptych. Also at The Drunk Projectionist are links to other episodes and quite a few blog posts including ones on the 50th anniversary of 2001, The Space Odyssey, and a peek at the worst Best Picture winners that the Academy Awards ever gave an Oscar to. You know, at the top of the list are the best Best Pictures, Godfather, Godfather 2, etc. And then uh, a couple of critics from Newsweek magazine came up with the list and worked themselves all the way down to the bottom. And of course, near the bottom are Forrest Gump, Crash, and eight other movies. You'll see the whole list. Oh, at least the whole list of the worst on our website. 
Uh, just one more thing. Please write a review of the podcast at the iTunes store, the Apple podcast thing. You know, if you're on Apple, you get it. You can just write a little review. That'll help spread the word about the drunk projectionist. All right. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Todd Meldy. See you next time. <laughs>